welcome to Drinks at the Doll, episode 60. It's a fey, 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 fey world. You're listening to Drinks at the Doll, a podcast waystation for Lost Girl fans. I'm your host, Stephanie. And I'm Annie. And I'm Chris. And I almost was like, if we have a guest with us this week, Annie, because it's been so long since you've yay. been on the show with us. So yay, Annie's back this week. Yay, sorry, real life stuff got in the way. but That's okay, but, but we and I'm sure the listeners have missed you, so we're happy to have you back this week. We should play the Welcome Back Cotter theme song, but change it to Welcome Back Annie. <laughs> no? Welcome Back Docubuster? <laughs> <laughs> But this week, we're actually, we're going back to the beginning of the series, temporarily. We're, we are talking about the, the first episode of Lost Girl, but I just wanted to make clear, we are not actually starting over and going to discuss all the episodes in order. We are just sort of featuring an episode that is a f- favorite episodes of ours throughout, particularly the, the first through third season, since we haven't discussed those as in-depth as the fourth season. And in regards to spoilers, this is not a spoiler-free discussion. While I don't think we're going to heavily talk about things that happen later on in the series, we're not just limiting ourselves to only talking about the things that happen in this episode. Again, we're not starting over. We're not going to discuss every single episode in order. We're just kind of featuring some favorite episodes of ours. And this was one that Chris picked. I did. Just to throw you off so that you'll be confused about whether or not we're doing all the episodes or just particular ones. (laughs) Yes, because that's that's just how Chris rolls. But but let's start with why we like this episode. So you can go first, Chris. What is it about this episode that you really enjoy? I enjoy the way they introduced all the characters, which I know we've talked about probably a zillion times at this point. But I really do like how, you know, we get the introduction of Bo, especially. It's sort of a weird introduction for a main character and showing the bond that forms almost immediately between Bo and Kenzie, I really like. And I just think it's a solid pilot. It's not a pilot, though. Well, sorry. (laughs) A solid first episode that normal general audiences see. (laughs) As opposed to (laughs) the premiere. It's the premiere. I think it's a good premiere episode. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's... I agree with Chris. I think it's a good premiere episode. Although... The title is It's a Fey 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 World, not Pilot, which for some reason really annoys me when they don't give the pilot show a, a title. And I'm like, surely writers can think of a better title than that. Anyway, tangent. And he's back! Think, <laughs> yes! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I think why I like this episode is that it's it doesn't give everything away at first. I like the introduction of Bo, as Chris said. You're like, what's going on? There's this kind of tough-ass you know, leather-clad chick, but it's not just, oh, she's going to kick the guy's ass. She's going to, what? What happened? She kissed him to death? And then you have these two cops coming in, but if you listen, it's very interesting to listen to Dyson and Hale's conversation in that elevator the first time, because they're talking about things that are very much related to the Fae, but you don't know that until you really know the world of the Fae in retrospect. And it really just draws you in to this, you realize as the episode goes on that it's creating this whole world. It's not just, oh, kick-ass chick on the run, fighting with fists and being kind of a grifter. It's it's this, uh, her discovery, it's Bo's discovery and rebirth of finding out who she is for the first time. And that, you know, really pretty blonde doctor in a lab coat doesn't doesn't hurt either. So, documents! <laughs> documents! <laughs> Beginnings! Yay! 
Yeah, exactly. This is a great introductory episode to the series. And as we've mentioned many times before, this isn't actually the pilot, right? The pilot is episode eight. It's Vexed. That was the episode that they shopped around to network saying, here, this is the show we're interested in making. And while I think Vexed in and of itself would have made an interesting and great first episode, this is also a really good introductory episode. And it actually, I think, goes more into setting up the world of the series than Vex does. We don't really get a sense of the light versus dark. And I can't, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head if Bo actually succubus kisses anybody in that episode. I don't know that she does. I know she uses her tingly touch and we see her healing by sex in Vexed, but I don't think she actually sucks anybody. Maybe I'm wrong. So it's great to get this introduction of Bo killing somebody. It's a really interesting introduction of our main character and just a really neat fleshing out of the world. So for a, a drink special for this episode, it took us a while to decide on on one, but we decided to go with kind of a, a, an alcoholic milkshake situation, given that, that Kenzie and Bo go for milkshakes. So we decided on something called Death by Chocolate, which involves Irish cream liqueur, creme de cacao, vodka, and chocolate ice cream, and it sounds pretty good. It does. Plus, there's the whole death by something sweet kind of thing going on, which is appropriate yep. for this show. Yeah, I'd, it's relevant. I'd go for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So let's let's just start at the beginning. Let's talk about our big introduction of Bo and at the same time really Kenzie in a lot of ways, which you know, we see Bo working in this bar, this, you know, sexy, mysterious woman working behind the bar, and she just gets more mysterious and interesting as these sort of moments go along. And what I really love about this introduction is that we see that she's not exactly, she's not a human. She's something different from a human pretty immediately. They don't take a long time to show you the supernatural aspects of this show. And one of the first things we see her do is kill somebody. It's in a protective way, but we see her kill a human. And I just think that's a really fascinating introduction for our lead character. I'm going to divert you for just a second. Can we talk about the human guy? Oh, God. That's not diverting me. He's gross. <laughs> he is gross. He's a very appropriately gross. But he said he was going back to Omaha, but he has a southern accent. People in Omaha don't sound like that generally, unless they're from, you know, the south somewhere. <laughs> I've never thought of that aspect. I thought you were going to comment about the character or something, but no, you want to comment on the accent. <laughs> because it drives me crazy. <laughs> I do kind of wonder, because this is a Canadian show, if, like, every time we see somebody with, like, a thick southern accent, if that's just supposed to be the default American accent, like, that's who Canadians think that all Americans kind of hey, sound we, like. I sound California, not not southern, no offense. But I'm Texan, and I don't sound, you know, I don't have the, the drawl. Anyway, but yeah, it's kind of awesome that Bo, like, takes out the the would-be rapist. Yeah, I I really like her protective side as well. And I like how Bo sort of susses him out from the very beginning. You know, she's like, no, I'm not going to take your drink. I know what's up. You know, she's street smart as well as, you know, being a succubus. So she has that in common with Kenzie. Knows how to thrive, knows how to live on the run. But still really has that really good heart of, I'm not going to let this girl get drugged and, you know, raped and possibly killed. So I do like that she sort of kept an eye on the guy to know what he was up to. And yeah, although thinking about it now, Kenzie, who is so street smart, how come she did take the drink? Well, I was actually going to mention that as sort of 
of something that we learned about Kinsey through that scene is even though she is a con artist, even though we realize she is very street savvy, she's still a kid. You know, she's still kind of naive in some ways. True. Good point. She does love her drinks, so maybe that's my rationale of that part. And she was getting his wallet, you know, using an excuse to get in and rob him. But I think it was, I don't know if it was Jay Firestone or one of the producers who said, yeah, this is, like, very unusual that you have a show where within the first five minutes your lead character kills somebody, and that's their intro. And, again, it's a fascinating intro because you don't see, you see that, you know, you might look at Bo initially in that first scene and go, oh, maybe it's just a, it's a show about a con artist, or she's dressed in leather and looks really sexy, yeah. Oh, wait a minute, this is a supernatural element. This is a different kind of show. As soon as you see the special effects and the blue eyes and everything, you go, oh, this show's going in kind of a different direction. Yeah, and I think we've talked about this before, but I think it's really interesting, and I think it reveals quite a bit about the the values of the show that Michelle Lavretta wanted to bring, in that they chose that this, this bad guy that Bo kills, they chose for him to be somebody who sexually assaults women. And because they, they obviously they needed this guy that Bo kills to be a bad guy. For Bo, for Bo to be our heroine, she needs to kill somebody who we see as bad. And so it wasn't just that he was kidnapping Kenzie or trying to steal something from Kenzie. He was trying to rape Kenzie. And I think it's, it's very telling that that was that was the thing that they chose to paint this character as a bad guy. And I like that it really shows Bo as kind of a protector of women in a lot of ways in this moment. And anybody who listens to our Orphan Black podcast knows what I said when Bo took that guy out, right? Deserved, Deserved it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I love how, you know, Bo walks out of the elevator and Kenzie's like, hey, what about me? And this little plaintive you know, her voice, and you're just like, oh, Kenzie, and she just goes, ah. and Bo knows she can't, you know, she, there's no way she can walk away without doing the right thing. So she's like, come on, picks her up and takes her. Exactly, because, I mean, she's kind of upset with Kenzie later on, saying, you know, well, I gotta run again because of you, because I helped you. But at the same time, I think Bo knows in her heart of hearts, she couldn't have just let Kenzie be assaulted if she knew that that was going to happen. I think she yeah. knows that she just couldn't let that let that pass by her and not do something about it. Yeah. Well, this brings up an interesting question. If in her 10 years of running and killing, since Stephanie, you were saying that how the character is painted, she kills a person who is about to do a really bad or evil deed. If you wonder what her kills have been like in the past 10 years, if she refers to later, it's this hunger that sort of builds and builds. And then she just has to, you know, and then that happens, meaning she sucks the chi out of them, if she's always had to wait for an opportunity when she's been in a bad situation to feed. I mean that she ate some dude's face and it was amazing? <laughs> yeah. I do I do wonder about that, too. I, I think for sure probably some of them were just people she had sex with, maybe thinking, oh, maybe that was just that one-time thing that this happened. Oh, no, there's somebody else who's, you know, now dead in bed next to me. But I do wonder if she had, for a time, like really targeted people to feed her hunger, if you will, knowing that it would hurt them and kill them. Because that seems like Bo's way. <laughs> right. I suspect that it started off as, you know, like with Kyle, like a completely accidental thing. And then upon realizing that this was something that was always going to happen, that she did essentially pull a Dexter and go after specific people. Baddies rather than just, you know, whomever. Right. Like, if this is going to happen, if it has to happen, it might as well happen to somebody who, you know, deserves it. <laughs> 
So let's talk about that, the feed that she has in the elevator, because as, as things tend to go, tend to go, it's very different in this first episode than when we see it in subsequent episodes. Because, well, A, Bo kills him. This is really the only time on the show besides in the flashback where we see what happened with her and Kyle, where we see Bo kill somebody, just like drain the life out of them using her, her succubus ability. And he ends up all like frosty eyed and with those marks on his face. And we never see that again. Yeah. Yep. And that kind of doesn't bug me, but it's just, it, it is kind of typical of early shows or even though this isn't a pilot, you know, where I just think it, it's partially a production standpoint. They're trying to figure out what are we going to do with the makeup? What are we going to do? How's the, the are, are the effects going to look? And I don't know if they were really thinking ahead to a point, okay, she kills somebody. This is what they look like. It's not going to happen very often, but. But, yeah, I just think it's kind of a hallmark of, you know, early episodes or seasons of this is what it looks like at the beginning. And then, yeah, we never really see that effect again. So that's kind of what I chalk it up to. I've always found the the marks kind of really disturbing, even if and the smile, even if it is on the face of a really creepy guy. But I think that kind of adds to the element of how powerful the succubus is and that they die looking like that, at least that one time. It does add to the supernatural element to it. Like, this is not a normal, quote-unquote, normal death. But I, I think we can actually, for people who are, are sticklers about continuity, of which I am one, I think we can really? actually... Yeah, I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> we can probably just say the reason her, her subsequent feeds didn't look like that is he's really the only person we've seen her kill using her succubus ability. I think the closest we got was... The dark fey guy in episode 301 in Caged Fey at the end, but he's not killed by her. He falls into a coma. We do see Kyle, and he doesn't have any marks on his face, but I'm trying to remember if they, I feel like they might have mentioned that he wasn't dead. He ended up like in a coma and then he died, but I don't remember exactly. Yeah, me so, neither. So it, that, there is that one continuity break that if she did kill Kyle outright, that he didn't have the marks on his face, but I'm, I'm content with saying, the reason subsequent fees haven't had the marks is because of, of that reason, because she didn't kill him, kill them. Fair enough. Actually, that, that whole sequence of feeding from the guy at the beginning, any, any comic book fans know that that reminds me, and I've mentioned this before, it, it very much reminds me of Rogue's powers from X-Men. You know, Bo leaves her feed in the elevator, and this is our introduction to Dyson and Hale coming upon this this body that she left behind. And I feel like it's a very interesting, vague introduction of Dyson and Hale, because I think when you're first watching, you get a sense that they're maybe not normal cops, but you don't know exactly what's going on with them yet. Well, especially since they get rid of the other guy. Yeah, Frank, go canvas or something. Mm -hmm. See, I'm the quotations expert. If I watch the episode enough, I'll have it memorized in time. <laughs> or at least all the quote docubus quotations, but yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's interesting because the way they are talking, where they're, Dyson says, oh, this is sloppy, this kill is sloppy, you know, and they find the hair. And in retrospect, as you know more and more about Lost Girl, and if you were to watch episodes, especially now in the fourth season, and you go back and you watch this episode, you know, you realize they don't know what kind of kill it is, they're trying to figure out if it's a succubus or not. But when you first watch it, you're like, what's going on with these cops? And how come the beardy guy keeps smelling the other guy? <laughs> that is something that I did latch on when I first watched is that Dyson brought everything up to his nose. I'm like, okay, 
Yeah. He's something going on with him where he can smell really well. Well, I didn't catch that until later, and I'm like, oh, yeah, he's a wolf. So, But I thought that was a really neat touch. <laughs> and then the first impression I have of Hale is, what kind of homicide cop dresses like that? But that's just, that's Hale, and that's how he's portrayed much. I think we had talked about him uh, in the Hale episode, how it was a little one-dimensional how he was just portrayed. It's just kind of this smooth-talking ladies' man siren, but um, how he develops later. But it is kind of interesting. Uh, it's very much, I think, kind of TV land versions of how cops should be. They, I think, Dyson and Hale, are this good introduction to this idea that there are these creatures existing among humans, especially since we got this idea that they had to send this guy away before they could really talk freely about this kill that they found. We see very quickly, you know, we next, I think we next see Dyson and Hale at the doll, don't we? Where Hale is drinking his tea, all Hale and his tea. And, and Dyson comes in and kind of like reports back to Trick that something weird is going on. And how sort of irritating is that conversation between Trick and Dyson? Mm-hmm. In the sense that it's all vague comments. <laughs> <laughs> it's beginning then. Can't fight yeah. fate. Watch and wait. Ah, I'll do what I can what? when the time comes. <laughs> and, and even to this day, the fourth season, we still don't know what that means. They're still like, keeping what, what things from Bo. It's beginning. Exactly. What does that mean? Literally, the comment I have in my notes is, Trick is full of vague comments. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, he is still a vague comments. But I think we as an audience still really don't know what's going on at that point. You know, it's not really obvious that Dyson is part of this world or is a shifter until he, you know, shifts in front of Bo later and she says, what the hell are you? You know, everything is, I think, not really spelled out for the audience in terms of what this world is until later in the episode, but I kind of like that. You know, you have to keep an audience hooked. You have to keep things a little bit, you know, intriguing, even if you don't know, you know, everything in the first five minutes, and that's fine. Yeah, I think most of the time, Kenzie is kind of our entry point into the Lost Girl world, but in this first episode, it's really both both Bo and Kenzie, Mm -hmm. and I like that we don't really figure out what's going on until Bo does, even though we do see more of, like, Dyson and Hale and Trick before... Bo meets them, meets the Ash and things like that, but it stays intentionally kind of vague and you're not quite sure what's going on until Bo gets kind of a bigger perspective on it. Yes, from Dr. Exposition. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that was her nickname. Okay. It's, it's not. <laughs> that took me a minute it's to get not. it. I'm all, oh, they're talking about Lauren. I just okay. now made that up. <laughs> okay, well, whatever. She's Dr. Hot Pants Exposition. I don't care what kind of doctor is. She's effing hot. So that's all I care about. And she's smart. Super smart. Anyway, Hence the exposition. On. Yeah. But she makes it sound so sexy. Yeah, check <laughs> in this episode, I feel like we don't get a whole a great de- deal of, of information about him. I think we get the sense that, uh, more in the context of Dyson, I guess, that Dyson kind of has two loyalties here, both to the Ash and to Trick. And Trick, as Chris said, makes vague comments. but Vague, ominous comments. Yeah, very but we, we don't really get a good sense of who Trick is at all in this episode. It's He's very mysterious in the first episode, I think. There is some sense that he has power, mm-hmm. but again, it's it's all sort of muddled under the hole. He's he's like lurking in the shadows, and then he yeah, you know, steps out to talk to the two leaders, and they seem to sort of respect him, but not a whole lot. And I don't know. It's very odd. Yeah, because he does. He does approach the Ash and the Morgan later in the episode. And because he does this, he's not just 
a lowly little person in this community. Obviously, he has some heft to his presence, and he makes that let's not kill her quite yet. Let's see what who she is, essentially, type of comment. And I was like, ah, trick. But <laughs> well, I think he's. I think that comment always it makes me shudder a little bit because I think he, I always wonder now if he know, knew at the beginning that Bo was his granddaughter, and it's my opinion that he did. So that kind of I makes think that it- was his suspicion. Like, I think he wasn't sure that he was who he thought he was, but I think that's who we're supposed to assume he was waiting for. Yeah. When, when like Dyson comes back and reports to him. Yeah. So, I mean, they, that's kind of what their vague comments could refer to in the, in the beginning with that conversation at the doll. But I, I also think he says that line just for the show, for the Morgan and the Ash, just so they don't kill her because he, he wants her around. But I think it's interesting because, to me, Trick comes across as fairly kind of dark and a little bit sinister in this episode. Yeah. But he really gets lightened up in the course of season one. But come later seasons, especially season four, we see how actually dark and sinister he is. And again, this is, I think, something that can happen in first episodes where they have a certain idea with a direction they're going to go with the character. And then they realize, oh, that's maybe a little too fast Let's maybe lighten him up a bit in sort of the immediate subsequent episodes and then get more into that piece of his storyline later on. I don't know. I can actually make an argument that they did it deliberately, that he starts out kind of shady and then they lighten him up. And I think then- it works. Yeah. Because when we when we see him meet Bo, he's all like, hey, because he wants to get sort of foster a relationship with Bo. So it makes sense. Well, and I think the fact that they do foster a relationship and that he really comes to know Bo, I think that makes a difference and then you know the the topic of her father comes up and that's really when trick starts getting dark again i don't think it's necessarily accidental is what i'm saying getting back to to bow and kenzie simultaneously to us getting a glimpse into the the fae characters on this show we have bow and kenzie really bonding over milkshakes and checklists I actually really love the scene directly before the milkshakes where, you know, Bo has brought Kenzie back to her. I'm going to go ahead and call it her house, but you know what I mean? Her abode. (laughs) Because there's a whole scene where Bo goes from being defensive at Kenzie's accusations because, you know, Kenzie's like, you know, did you bring me back here to kill me or whatever it is that she is asking. and But she's all defensive about that. And then she goes from that to concerned when Kenzie starts having a panic attack. I think I'm having asthma. Can you totally get asthma? But I love that because it's one of those, it's another really great character moment for Bo, where you kind of understand her that, you know, she's so offended by Kenzie thinking that she means her harm to being really concerned about her well-being. And I also really like that Bo tells her, you know, I would have taken you home, but none of these wallets were yours, so I couldn't find your... Your address, and then Kenzie has her fantastic. I'm a correct collector of rare, rare wallets line, which is one of my favorite Kenzie lines ever. Yeah. And and Bo's like, I'm not judging. That's a nice little sideline you got going on there. I like that Bo has this moment of, and I think it tells a lot about Bo. She recognizes that you you don't always get to live entirely on the up and up, and she doesn't look down on Kenzie for sort of her little sideline as a con artist. Well, exactly, because Bo herself has probably had to do the same things or live the same way just to live on the run. You know, she's not exactly living on the up and up either. And I love that little moment where Kenzie's freaking out and Bo's like, why would I save you, you know, just to kill you? And 
you know, and then it gets to that moment where Kenzie's like, well, are you going to kill me? And Bo's like, it depends. And then there's that little pause there where it's like, she could say something totally sinister and it's like, instead, do you like milkshakes? And the cut to Bo sucking on a milkshake, which is... So. And they really play it up with the music on that. Yeah, on that exactly. The, music. the yeah. sinister music. Dun, dun, dun. Do you like mm. milkshakes? And the fact that Bo, you know, in the ne- that next scene, you know, does the touch on the waitress, you know, means that, yeah, she is really broke and she probably couldn't afford two milkshakes, just like Kenzie probably couldn't. And yet Bo chooses to live this way. And Kenzie says, yet yeah, you're broke, you live in a crack shack, and you could be making tons of money, but you choose to do this and save random people like me. But that's the morality of Bo that gets pointed out that I really love. And you were talking about the moment, Stephanie, where Bo is compassionate towards Kenzie for stealing the wallets. Mm -hmm. I like that they sort of parallel that at the diner because Kenzie responds with compassion rather than judgment when Bo, you know, talks about having to kill people, essentially. Right. Because Bo, I mean, clearly from the look on her face, she was expecting judgment and so I like that we get that moment where Kenzie's just kind of like, oh, man, that sucks. Yeah, yeah. Definitely we see Bo and Kenzie bonding over their rather unconventional lifestyles. You know, I think Kenzie does recognize a potentially powerful ally in Bo, but I think she's also touched by Bo's compassion. Because I, 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 doesn't she have a line about how I know things could have gone really bad for me last night mm-hmm. and yeah. you and you protected me? So I, I just I love that bond that that forms between the two of them because they sort of recognize the similarities between each other and how Bo helped Kenzie and how how Kenzie could potentially be a, a, a sidekick and a helper for Bo. She does end up helping Bo mm-hmm. and, and toward the end of the episode, which is another thing I love about the episode is that it plays out yeah. that way. Yeah, and I love her unconventional response, Kenzie's unconventional response. You know, and Bo's like, "This is serious." You know, I you shouldn't hang out with me. I'm, you know, I kill people. And, and Kenzie's like, but you have the power to change people by touch and not in a creepy hand job sort of way. That is awesome. And I was like, what? You know, because she's <laughs> never had anybody, she's never looked at her powers that way. But Kenzie is just kind of this breath of fresh air. You know, Bo's probably thinking, okay, there's maybe a reason to keep this silly little girl around me. Yeah. And Bo making the comment to Kenzie, something about, I'm not normal. And Kenzie says, well, it's a good thing you're not normal because a normal person would have left me to fate, exactly. basically. Yeah. And we should also mention as a good character moment for Bo in this episode, we have that montage a bit early in the episode where she's taking off all of her clothes and burning them, the ones that she wore when she killed the guy, and getting all of her things packed and ready to go and pulling her faked IDs out of the fireplace. With the Canadian and money. I- <laughs> yeah, with the Canadian money. And and not only is I I feel like that that sequence really cut together well, and I love the music, but it's just this great sense of ritual and sort of the habit that Bo has of having to do this because she's done it so many times. Right. And I would think Kenzie has that pretty much down pat as well for her life, so on how to roll from one place to another. Kenzie and Bo get some good bonding time, and then all of a sudden, Bo gets kidnapped. And I must say, I'm, I'm like very impressed with Kenzie that she's committed enough to Bo at this point to go after her, to try to help her. She doesn't just leave Bo to her fate. 
And that's also when we get the first sense of Hale's abilities. I, he's not called a siren in this episode, but we, we get a sense of what he can do that's beyond human capabilities. And his power is so cool, y'all. <laughs> it's like so cool. <laughs> Uh, we know what uh, Stephanie would answer if she ever got the what power would you choose question. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I do like that moment. And especially since I think that follows the discussion they have where Kenzie's talking about, you know, mom always said, make friends with the toughest kid right. at school or whatever mm-hmm. the thing is. Yeah. And, you know, that that statement is made and then Bo gets taken. <laughs> yeah. And then Kenzie goes after her, like. Kenzie is helping the toughest kid in school, or who she sort of assigned that role to. She latches on to Bo right away, because she knows that, I think her instincts are really on, she knows that they'll make a good partnership, even if Bo seems reluctant, because she's like, you know, look at what my powers can do, but, you know, Kenzie's like, well, this is almost, this is like a debt I owe, she's in trouble, she saved my life, I'm gonna help her. You know, and that's the, again, I think, also the inherent core of Kenzie, too, that she'll protect the people that she cares about, even if she's just met them, because she's like, look at what this person did for me. This is a dangerous life we live, that we're, we bonded over, running from place to place. So, yeah, and I and of course, Kenzie probably wants to find out more about these strange people with these strange powers, so, yeah. And I love, of course, that we get to see Kenzie and her contacts, you know, speaking to her cousin and, you know, speaking Russian. We'd see Ksenia speak Russian, which is great. I love the YouTube clip, the clips where they put together all the parts of Ksenia speaking Russian in the show. Oh, I guess I should also mention at this point, because when when Bo gets kidnapped, we get a really good shot of her car. And it's the same type of car that she has subsequently. It's a Chevelle. I don't know if it's exactly the same year, because I'm not that good with car models. Chris, maybe your dad has said anything. I don't know. I once asked him about the Beast, and he said it was either a 68 or 69 Camaro. For the yellow or the blue? It's not a Camaro. It's a, it's a Chevelle. I thought it well, was a Camaro. I'm telling you, that's what he told me it looked like to him. Hmm. Because it has a little CC on the front. I'm just telling you what he told me from the little picture on Twitter on my phone. So it was small. Okay. I will okay. give you that. I don't know. but Are we talking about this beast in uh, this episode? or the, the No, no. It was one of the more recent pictures from Twitter that... Either Emily or Vanessa tweeted a picture. Oh yeah, of it. yeah, yeah, of the yellow beast. Yeah, yeah I'm. Okay. I'm sorry. It, it's not a CC. It has a little SS on its yes, grill yes. on the front. That's it. Yes, and I think that's a, a signature of the of the Chevy Chevelle. So I'm pretty sure it's a Chevelle. It looks like it's probably a, a late '60s model, so like 1967, 1968. But it's blue in this first episode. And we actually got somebody when we were talking about hanging plot threads who sent in a combination of hanging plot threads plus just sort of like little nitpicky questions about the show. And that was one of them mentioned was, why is it blue in this episode and yellow subsequently? Again. Again. Common First thought. episodes, things often will change after after sort of the first episode or so. And there's a lot of reasons. It could be they wanted to buy the car for the production and the blue one they used in the first episode wasn't available. It could be the blue one didn't run and they wanted to find a car that ran so that they could do driving shots. Because I don't think we actually see it move in this episode. It's always parked. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of reasons why they the car pulled the switcheroo. Yes, it's a continuity error in that Bose car is blue in this episode and yellow and subsequent. But it's something that kind of that tends to happen in TV shows is you'll have little little switches like Not that. Years. Yep. Yeah. And a side note, that alley where Bo gets, you know, kidnapped from and then they get dropped off from 
later at the end of the episode. So there's a list of, uh, I think it was on Tumblr once, a list of season one Lost Girl exterior locations. So that was the one I was able to find. I was like, I've been in that alley. But it was quite embarrassing, just on my own, to, to find somebody going, I know I'm in a graffiti alley, but can you take a picture of me in it? Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Like, I was very nice. So the, the graffiti is, is up there. That's a permanent yeah. mm-hmm. feature of the alley. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Because I love all of the graffiti art on the show. So I'm sitting there with pictures of the show on my phone, and I'm trying to match it, and I'm mapping it, and oh god. That's kind of a journey to find it, especially because I'm directionless. But yeah, I did find it and take a zillion pictures. So You nerd. I know, I love being a nerd. Isn't it great? When I go back to Toronto, i got to find the rest of those exterior locations. Because I think just about all of them are public. So, so once Bo is, is kidnapped, it really leads to the introduction of the political side of the Fey world because she gets she gets hauled to the ash and we also meet the Morrigan. And we also meet Annie. Lauren. <laughs> well we also meet Annie. That's not a character of the show. <laughs> I know, I know what you were doing, but all that was going on and I tried to figure out how to make a hauling ash joke. <laughs> <laughs> we all have our priorities. <laughs> But, but yeah, so, so Bo gets hauled back to the Ashes compound and asked a bunch of questions, ashed a bunch of questions. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and this is where, like, like Annie mentioned earlier, we get kind of the reveal of Dyson having some kind of shifting ability. We don't know exactly what he shifts into because he just, he gets his, he gets toothy and he, his eyes change in this first episode, but we do get a sense of, okay, he's some kind of shifter and a kind of strong, apparently very feral. And I, you know, we get a sense that Bo is a bit of a badass because she's handcuffed to a chair and just headbutts the ash and has no yeah. disregard. Well, she's very independent. We see, you know, we see where the whole, status of her being unaligned starts to come out because she's like, I'm not going to abide by these rules. Not only do I have no idea what's going on, you know, buddy, I'm not, you know, Scottish. I don't have a clan, but, um, (laughs) you know, these rules are stupid and, you know, what is going, you know, she's just like, I just want to get left, you know, get out of here. And I love, but it's kind of a side note, but I love how when she's being dragged to the ash, she refers to Kenzie as her friend already. Mm -hmm. So that's very telling. And mostly we just get a sense of she's supposed to belong to some sort of group and she has no idea what they're talking about yeah. through the, the questions that we hear from Nash because he's all, just name your clan. And she makes her comment like, buddy, I'm not Scottish. I don't have a clan. I, I don't need haggis. Yeah. 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 Except it's Batman Ash. So it's more like, name your clan. I know. By the way, apparently that's like an acting voice because I saw him on Ricky Blue, Clay Bennett, and he did not sound like that yeah, at I all. Know. No, really? Because he sounds like that on Flashpoint. Oh, I gotta watch some interviews with him. But yeah, he's a great actor. <laughs> so, um. I miss Batman Ash. I know. Batman Ash. But I do think it was always, it's kind of a tangent for that scene, but I think it was interesting how Lauren comes in first saying, sorry, I couldn't stop her. It is the Morgan after all. And then the Morgan, like, breezes in like a Disney villain. Yeah, yeah, yes. exactly, exactly. And you're like, Wow, what makes you think Lauren would be... Wh- why would Lauren be trying to intercept the Morgan in the first place? Or just maybe she was on the way to, you know, the beat Yeah, the that was or- very convenient. Like, it really should have been probably a guard or yeah, somebody like yeah, that. Yeah. But, you know, save yourself some money. You get a a main character to, to be that to be that person who's all 
I'm introducing you to this other significant character. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, it yeah it does save money. You have one member of the ensemble introducing another member, so there you go. Yeah, and they needed to bring Lauren into the room anyway, so why not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Breezing in, in her with her doctor coat ruffling behind her, so I like that, so that's fine. But yeah, it's like economy of characters as well as, as money. Because extras that don't talk, they, they don't get paid all that much. But as soon as they have a line... They get paid more. They get paid a lot more. Yep. Or even if you can see that they're saying something particular, they get paid a lot more. So it was it was convenient of them to use Lauren in that regard. Yeah. But I love the I love the introduction of the Morrigan. I know Chris has always sort of has said that she's not a huge fan of the Morrigan at the beginning, but what? I think she's great in this she's episode. She's freaking fantastic. I do like her introduction and her scene with the Ash. I do like that. It, and it's one of those things, I think a lot of it was just me sort of getting used to it. <laughs> Because again, mm-hmm. she's like a Disney villain, and it just sort of <laughs> sometimes it takes me a while to like get used to that kind of thing. It's a very interesting mix of characters you have in that scene because you have Bo with her, you know, she's got this morality, but she doesn't know what's going on. She's got this new friend that she's been introduced to. She's just been kidnapped. They're talking about clans. You have this Batman voice Ash guy. You know, you have this woman in a doctor coat. You have this wolf, and then you have this woman that breezes in like a Disney villain who has such charisma. Emmanuel Vaugier just owns that role and just has a presence that just cannot be duplicated. So even from the beginning, just like, whoa. But yeah, you you do see that through the eyes of Bo. What the heck is going on here with all these crazy people? Yeah, you really do feel for Bo in that moment. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the thing that I really was intrigued with the introduction of the Morgan is, A, she's a great character. Like you said, tons of charisma, just as immediately like, this character's going to be good. I can tell it's going to be good. But I loved that we really quickly got a, a female in a fairly prominent leadership role introduced on the show, that it wasn't just all these dudes, because we'd seen male Faye up to this point besides Bo. So I like that we got a prominent female leader introduced in the first episode. And I think that's part of the reason, probably production-wise, because, correct me if I'm wrong, probably Emmanuel Vaugier's role was expanded and built upon as the series progressed. And I love that they, even through season four, how many ashes have we been through, but we've still had Ebony around the whole time. So I love that. Yeah, she has said in interviews that her role was was not supposed to last very long. Maybe she was even just hired for that one episode Mm -hmm. to begin with. Yeah. But it was greatly expanded. And I'm glad. She's a great character. She's a great menace, I think, a great menacing figure to have in the Lost Girl world. But I also like that more recently we've gotten to see different sides to her. She's becoming a bit more fleshed out as a character. Yeah. The scene between the Morgan and the Ash, where they're sort of in the light compound, wherever the... And they have the the plants there. Mm-hmm. I really like how that scene, how the lighting is designed in that scene. It's very pretty. It is And very that's pretty. my random shallow Is this the, the point where comment. she breaks the bromeliad? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is very pretty. Light. I love how that scene shows the power play between this light and the dark that as an audience member, you're kind of mm-hmm. wondering what's going on between these two. And, you know, the Morgan is kind of saying to the Ash, you know, do you, do you follow the rules so much? Or what is the line when she breaks the bromeliad? He, I mean, she makes some comment about his castration. Yeah, yeah. Again, that's what makes the Morgan such a compelling character from the beginning. <laughs> so such charisma. But. Yeah, you know, I think it points to the differences between the Dark and the Light Fae, where the Dark Fae, you know, they have the rules, but the Dark Fae certainly are going to have more fun with them, or, you know, are just more upfront. Yeah, definitely you get the dy- the sense of the dynamic between 
particularly those two characters, but also I think between the light and the dark, where the Morgan's just all, well, why don't we just kill her? The Ash is more measured in his approach to how to deal with Bo. So that, can I jump to? And then we have Batman Ash saying, Lord needs to examine the girl. And then the first eye sex scene, <laughs> the beginning of Docubus, she leans over and she says, please come with me. And all of us go, ah. or at least I do. And I'm all, huh? there's something I'm so going glad on. These episodes are already rated explicit. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> I just can't help it. But yeah, like many people, I was introduced to the show saying you have to watch it for these, this pairing. So. Me, fast-forwarding to that scene. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you say you're kidding. I She's don't believe kidding. that you are. <laughs> not the first time. <laughs> but all subsequent times. Yes, that's true. <laughs> so now, we, can we talk about the doctor exposition now? Of course. You gave a great introduction, Annie. Go for it. You even you use, like, a sexy phone voice and everything. <laughs> doctor exposition. She's just... The insatiable human type, but it makes her very sexy. Well, she says insatiably curious, curious. but yeah, I think yeah. you omitted the curious on purpose, and that's what sexy instead. The insatiably sexy human doctor. Okay, so then we have the uh, next scene with Lauren and Bo, and Bo in her birthday suit. And I think it's really interesting that when Bo asks, What are you checking me for? and Lauren says, Brands. Because it distinguishes a lot of clans have, she said a lot of clans or a lot of fae have brands. And I don't know, besides under fae, do we see a lot of brands on fae throughout the series? Again, I don't know if this is like a first episode type line where we just don't see it referred to a lot. Yeah, I mentioned that in the Dark Fae episode that we just did. It actually got cut out of that episode. It was in the little subsequent extra episode that I released. It's in episode 59, Drinks the Doll dot com slash 59, where we talked a little bit about this sort of lack of branding that is mentioned in the first episode, but we don't really see it subsequently. We do see in Fatal Justice where Bo sees Dyson's tattoo on his back and he says that it's written in like a shifter language and it talks about kings that he served. Yeah. And that's how Bo realizes that the the guy working at Vex's club is also a shifter. But that's really the only other time I think that they've really talked about branding. Though obviously we have we have Bruce who has the mark on his head for a time it disappears. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or Trick has his arm tattoo. But we don't know the significance I of that. Know. I would love to know the significance of that. But then and then Dyson has his arm tattoo, which as Chris Holden Reed has talked about in interviews, that's actually a like an ancient hobo symbol for Well not ancient. <laughs> no, not ancient. Okay. So not so ancient symbol for like beware of dog or so, yeah. which is great. But you know, those are all put on the actors every day as temporary tattoos for the show. So you wonder, are they specific to, okay, this is for, this is his tattoo as a shifter. This is his tattoo as a blood King type thing. But then, you know, what the official lost girl merchandise just came out with through in correlation with a tattoo shop, white Faye and dark Faye tattoos. And I'm like, I know. I was actually really excited to see that. And those. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Does every light fay and dark fay have this, you know, overall arching type brand? Yeah, this discussion about brands. If they do, it's in a very well hidden place. Yeah, and it's place. very tiny. It's tattooed in a very personal place. Yes. We'll just say that. Let's Ouch. just say, well, not that Bo would ever get one, but if she did, Lauren would know where it is. <laughs> 
if you're talking about personal Dyson place. would, too. <laughs> yeah, well, Lauren would know first, because they were together at the end of season four, in my mind, so. <laughs> I think they were all symbols we hadn't seen before, too, right? You know, I had thought so as well. When I saw the temporary tattoos, I didn't recognize either the light fey or dark fey symbols. I thought, oh, that's neat. I didn't realize they had them, but that's cool. However, when I was rewatching the premiere this time, I noticed the light and dark fey symbols. They're on the banners that are hanging kind of from the walkway that the Ash and the Morgan are standing on when Bo is fighting both of the underfey. I don't know that they've put them anywhere else on the show, but they definitely were in the show at least this once. And it's kind of obscure, but I thought it was neat that they, they hold on, held on to those designs and they made them more prominent by putting them on these temporary tattoos. But you got us, you got us off track talking about Dr. Lauren. Oh, yes, Dr. Lauren. Well, this is the scene where we find out that because this woman comes in and we're like, okay, maybe it's Faye Doctor, but she's human. And you're like, okay, it's a human who knows about this fey world. How interesting. And that she's been in this fey world for quite a while. And she's very educated about it and gives Bo the rundown of the fey are divided into groups, dark and light. And, you know, this is how it goes. You have to choose in between them. And that Lorne is very much entrenched in the rules of the fey world. She goes, these, are, these rules are unbreakable. You can't just go ahead and do what you want. And she, she has subsequent conversations with Bo about that throughout season one in particular of you can't just be unaligned because then I can't help you. Hence Dr. Exposition. Yes, Dr. Exposition yeah. tells her that she is, you know, just spit it out, what am I? You're a succubus. Boy, does she make that sound sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see online a lot people, some people on Twitter saying that Lauren is a boring character and that's fine. You can think what you want. I'm not trying to say that you can't think that, but from the first scene... I was like, Lauren is one of the most interesting characters on the show, to me at least, because of the fact that she is a human doctor, but very clearly insulated in the Fey world. I'm like, this is automatically hugely interesting, which is why when I see the Lauren is boring comments, I'm just like, I don't get it. I mean, okay, fine, but I don't get it because just for me, she just is immediately, her situation is so interesting to me. And I think it continues to be really interesting throughout the series. But even in this first episode, she only has one scene. But I was just like immediately intrigued by her character. Well, and you don't, and you see that there's something in between Lauren and Bo and that Lauren is really intrigued with Bo from a medical standpoint, you know, which you will see, I think, even personally from a personal standpoint, which grows to their attraction later, that it's instantly there. You know, my God, you're beautiful, the comment that all the Docubus fans love to quote. You know, it's it's you can read it in so many different ways. So, Though I must say, when I first saw the episode, I wasn't entirely sure if her attraction to Bo was just because Bo gave her the tingly touch, or if it was going to be something that was going to be more fleshed out. Similarly, I, was, uh, I wasn't clear if, if Lauren was just going to be attracted to Bo, but, but be a bi another bisexual character, or if she would end up being a more of a lesbian character. Obviously, they don't use those labels on the show. But, you know, in this episode, it's not spelled out super clearly, which is fine. But I, I remember having a lot of questions about the nature of that attraction after I saw the, the that scene. But I love how, you know, Lauren is already so knowledgeable about the Fae when Dyson says, we're taking her to the glass factory. You know, we're going to give her the test. And Lauren says, without training, that's madness. And I love how Lauren is so seems to be so concerned about Bo or this new Fae already, but that she knows enough about the Fae and their rituals to know what's going on at this glass factory and that what the test is and 
how she has to choose a side. This human knows so much about the Fae rituals. As you said, Stephanie, is really intriguing. So that scene between Lauren Dyson and Bo, where we're basically, you know, Bo is handed off to Dyson to be taken to the glass factory. This is the first time we see Lauren and Dyson kind of interact, and they're not all that hostile to each other. And there's kind of, it seems to me, a common consensus that the fact that they're just sending Bo into the test, we don't know what it is yet, is not very kind to Bo, and it's not the norm. And it feels like that scene is really, plus maybe the one where where Dyson talks about where he realizes that Bo was probably protecting Kenzie by taking her with her. That's really the only setup we get for when Dyson helps Bo out before she goes into the test and lets her kiss him and, like, you know, draw energy off of him. Because when the first time I saw that episode, I still wasn't entirely clear why Dyson helped Bo right before the test. But that's the best conclusion I can come to. What do y'all think about that? Like, what what do you think led to Dyson helping Bo out? Yeah, I never thought of it, really. Because he was pretty hostile to her prior to that. Yeah. Well, but then he'd also had the scene with Trick where they were sort of discussing what to do. So maybe to some extent he was trying to accommodate Trick's plan that we don't really know about. That's Yeah, that's a good call too. Or there's also just the fact that, and this is sort of aside from your question, but I do think that in this episode especially we get, or Bo gets the most compassion from both Dyson and Lauren. Which, of course, plays in right. later in the season. but Well, and I think, I mean, it could just, it's their Hallmark as characters as well. They probably don't want to see this new Faye ripped apart. Dyson says, when asked about, you know, going through the test, Dyson says it's not up to us. So he realizes that it's not up to him, but he realizes that this isn't, you know, entirely fair. So maybe that's part of his decision-making process. And as he said, talking with Trick, and just his own, you know, again, going, what's going on with this unaligned... Faye that sure I'm sure everybody's intrigued by I'd rather help her than you know see her get killed yeah that line that Dyson has about it's not up to us it kind of makes me wonder if there might have been another scene where we might have seen him arguing with the ash and the Morrigan about their decision to give her the test that was maybe cut for time I'm I'm, I'm that might just be in my head I, I could be completely wrong but it does make me wonder if maybe a scene got cut where we saw them kind of making that decision so uh, this big kiss between between Bo and Dyson, we'd had in the scene pri- scenes prior, we'd had some setup between of the chemistry between Bo and Lauren, and then now we get this big reveal of the chemistry between Bo and Dyson, and that's one freaking hot kiss between the two of them before she heads into battle. It really is. I do not blame Bo for her Fourth of July in her mouth <laughs> comment like that. That was a seriously hot kiss between the two I of them. I love that comment, and I think it's a great. You know, people watching the show already can see, wow, this, you know, there's a potential attraction between Bo and these two characters. She's now got this friend who's trying to protect her, who that's really latched onto her. You know, everything is starting to get set up with these characters. And this is where it gets really intriguing, where you go, whoa, I could see, it's, it's the very beginning of the triangle, and you could see something potentially, you know, could happen. So do we think that that's the scene that they were auditioning with, where they broke the wall? Anna and Chris, or do you think it's the one in Vex? I think it's the one in Vex because if that was because they were throwing each other all over the place during that scene. <laughs> I also assume it's the vexed scene. <laughs> <laughs> that was Chris's Batman Ash voice, which is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I am not drinking. <laughs> 
Dang. Yeah, this is me sober, you guys. <laughs> but that's, again, I just feel like that's just a, that was a really great demonstration of kind of the, the really explosive kind of almost like animal attraction between, between Bo and Dyson. Cause I, I feel like even, I feel like both Bo and Dyson and Bo and Lauren, both those couples have a lot of chemistry, but I think they're really different types of chemistry where I feel like Bo and Lauren's, it's more of this like smoldering slow burn type of chemistry. Whereas with Bo and Dyson, it's a lot more sort of like immediate and animal. Because he's a wolf. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because he's a wolf. (laughs) And, and I just think that that's a really great demonstration of that chemistry that they have, as well as it's in this moment where we, we really get a glimpse of who Dyson is as a person where he goes out and he helps Bo, even though he's not really supposed to. And, and even though it's at a personal cost to him, it doesn't, she doesn't kill him, but he knows he, she doesn't necessarily have control of her powers and that it could be quite dangerous to himself, but he does it anyway. But then we get the, the big battle scene, which is pretty cool. Featuring the lovely Rob Archer, Yay. not as Bruce. I was going to say, do you think this is Bruce's brother? Could be. Or Bruce's, like, uncle? Well, you know how... Maybe. Bruce in, um, Confagion? More useless than your brother. I'm Steve. More useless than your brother Dave, or whatever. So it's Dave, Steve, and so who is this guy? You know, Bob? I don't know. Well, that's so, what I'm saying. Maybe this is the useless brother. Yeah, the useless brother. So... Was the who, joke I was trying to make. Yeah. Uh, well, he's kind of useless because he's kind of dead, so. I have been sniped. Yes, I know. You have been professionally <laughs> sniped again. God dang it. So, I think this is at the point in the show where you really realize this is, you know, more quote-unquote supernatural show. Very much fantasy is the, uh, you know, if I had to pick a genre that Lost Girl fits into, it's I, I wouldn't call it sci-fi. I would, I would just call it more supernatural fantasy genre because of what the underfay look like. We see when Bo faces these fae, these these underfay, these really weird looking monstrous creatures where it's great effects, great makeup and all of that. That this is where you know Lost Girl has its influences from shows like Buffy or Xena and where the audience can kind of go, "Whoa, this is really this is the fantastical part of it." And I think to me it's as a genre fan it's really intriguing to see this big build up and to see this big fight at the end. And to see how this character that's going against all odds and is introduced into this world of the Fae is gonna, is gonna fare. I think a lot of that fight is just based not just on Bo's power that she gets from Dyson, but her own just wits and ability. She has a lot of just street smarts and, you know, I think has been in fights before. And, you know, I always think if it was me in that situation, I would have just crapped my pants. But it just shows that Bo knows how to handle herself because of the life she's led in the last 10 years. And I think it's revealing about her as a character that she does well in the fight that just requires brains and, and, and quickness and, and muscle to a certain extent. Though less so, she doesn't really have to fight that guy all that much. He's, she's mostly evading him. But she almost is defeated by the second guy who really plays against her guilt. And, and how important that is to Bo, especially in the first season, this idea that she's, she's a person who's done things she's not proud of and is, is in fact very ashamed of and feels badly about them. And he's the one who almost defeats her. It's, it's Kenzie who has to save her from that guy. Mm-hmm. I do like also in the fight that she has with the first guy that right before she kills him, <laughs> he's got his forked tongue sticking out and, and Bo's response is gross. 
<laughs> Which is mostly our response, too, as an audience. Exactly. Because it's, it's again, one of those moments that Bo is not so different from us, is sort of what they're getting yeah. at here. Right. Yeah. This is yeah. weird to her, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just remember this tidbit Anna Silk had once in an interview. She said, she goes, yeah, I had to look way up and cram my neck up to look at Rob because he was so tall when <laughs> doing that scene. And give the actors kudos because you could tell from seeing their breath that they always, they said filming that scene it was that it was cold. cold. It's probably in the middle of a Toronto mm-hmm. winter. Yeah, it looked like it was really, really yeah. cold. But, and I, I love the moment where Kenzie is the one who saves Bo from the second underfay and the fact that it leads to Bo saying that, you know, I choose neither side, I choose humans, because Kenzie was the one who helped her. And again, I just, I love that it wasn't just, I don't want to be either light or dark, period. It was, I choose humans. I like that she very much put herself on the side of humans. Because mm-hmm. that is one of those, throughout the episode, we really see the most compassion, I think, come from the human characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that becomes the core of Bo's character, is not just that she's unaligned, but how important the humans are in her life that choose that stay with her throughout the series. You know, to this point in the series, still have, you know, whether it's a really tenuous role or how heroic they can be without their human powers, if they're tempted to become Fae or not, you know, it just it creates such a great dynamic for the series of the humans and the Fae. I think if the show was just all Fae, it would not be... As uh, it would not have as dynamic or as powerful writing or acting. So that was really a smart choice when creating this world that the writers did. But I was just thinking about the fact that Bo is kind of set up in this episode as being quite unique because she was ignorant of the fact that she was a succubus and of the Fey worlds. She was not aligned to either clan. However, <laughs> in Raging Fey, we meet the little kind of salamander lizard boy who was orphaned and then adopted by a a man who had no idea he was Faye and raised outside the Faye system. And when Bo goes to Lachlan about him, Lachlan says, you know, oh, that happens. Send him over to children's services or whatever. So I they do, I think, maybe kind of go back on this idea that, it, oh, it was super unique and crazy that Bo had no idea who the Faye were. I guess maybe the fact that she was an adult. That's what I was yeah. going to say. Was what was, was that unique? They yeah. didn't know about her and didn't find her at all. But but it's it's interesting to me that she's set up as kind of this very unique person, but, well, we meet somebody kind of like That's her later true. on. But that kid probably wasn't royalty either. But they didn't know that Bo was when she first showed but up. But I bet Trick did, which is the whole... I think he knows more than he's letting on, obviously, that whole scene at the beginning, or at the ending that we've mentioned, where he literally comes out of the shadows and tells the Ash and Morgan not to kill her, because it'd be a, politically it'd be a smarter move, and that's how he knows he's going to get to them. Yeah, the scene where he's skulking about in his fancy smoking jacket, or whatever it is. (laughs) But it looks so good on Rick. (laughs) He wears them well. I'm curious, because the Morgan has some insult that she hurls at him. Like, shouldn't you be in a garden somewhere? Or something like that. She makes a crack about him, probably because his height, which, boo, Morgan, that's not nice. Cobbling shoes, I think, is where she starts off. But I thought from her comment there that maybe he was supposed to be a gnome, or something like that. Like, that was his fae status was that he was a gnome. Did either of you get that impression, or did you just think, oh, I just thought she was being a jerk. <laughs> I just thought she was just making a comment about his about his height, something that short people would normally, this is your, you know, stereotypical occupation kind of crack. Because he shoots her a look, and then she looks chastised. 
And I, but I am actually very glad that that's not the direction that they went with them because it may, always really frustrates me that the only times we see short people, we see little people included in TV shows and movies as they're playing characters like elves or leprechauns or they're like Santa's elves on if they're not supposed to be supernatural creatures. So are there dwarves or or dwarves? Yeah. So I was glad that when it was revealed, sort of what what trick was in regards to who he was as a fae, that he wasn't one of those more stereotypical. Right. Types I think of Rick Howland had actually made some comment at some point about also being glad that he isn't playing that on the show. Yeah, because that's what he's yeah. gotten in previous roles is just those kinds of roles, and he says the show never makes a reference to that. Aside from here, one more random comment from me. This show loves an upturned collar. It starts in the first episode, <laughs> I think you guys. Of that every single time I see Dyson. I know. I I mean it's Chris it's can a pull thing, it off, but, but in this episode it's like, no, it's it's not just him, because both the Morrigan and the Ash have their collars oh, yes, up there. Yes. But but it doesn't look you know, some I mean on me it would look horrible or, you know, on a polo shirt or whatever. But yeah, it the costume design it, it does make it look really good, so yeah, I will say I'm not a huge fan of the upturned collar look generally, but but Chris Holden Reed really does pull it off. I I think maybe they still do it a little too much mm-hmm. in the in the wardrobe design, but but Chris Holden Reed does look good with an upturned collar. He can well, they've really got pull all these off. beautiful, tall, skinny people with long necks, exactly. and that's really so, how you have to look mm-hmm. to have that look work for you. Yeah, I'm surprised they actually haven't tried it on Rachel Scarson yet. Give it time. Because she she fits that those characteristics. Yep. yep. Next season. But but yeah, so good discussion, you guys. <laughs> Upturn good colors. job. Rachel Scarson's got freaking Valkyrie wings. She doesn't need no upturned collar yet. She's got she's got wings, so she's good for now. We also wanted to mention that we are getting Drinks of the Doll t-shirts made. They are going to be navy blue, and they're going to have our logo on the back. And then on the front, on the pocket, it's just going to be the part of our logo where it says Drinks of the Doll, a Lost Girl podcast. They are going to be about $20 U.S., including shipping, unless you live outside the United States, in which case there would be an extra charge for your shipping. And we're trying to get a sense of who right now might be interested in purchasing a t-shirt. We're getting them screen printed by somebody. So they'll be really nice, good quality, durable t-shirts. So if you are interested in a t-shirt, please send us an email to feedback at drinksatthedoll.com and let us know how many shirts you'd be interested in and what size. So that's sort of our, our in-depth discussion of the first episode of Lost Girl. And again, it's a really great introductory episode. We get to meet pretty much everybody except Vex in this episode. So we get to see all of our really crucial characters. Well, obviously not Tamsin, but she's not introduced until later. And yeah, it's just a really great introductory episode. Just a great episode of television. Lots of fun. And we will probably be doing more of these. I don't know that we're going to do them right one after each other, but we will do more kind of featuring episodes that we that we really like from the first bit of the show that we haven't talked about yet. We would love to hear your thoughts about this episode. I know it's a fan favorite for a lot of people. You can send us those thoughts by going and leaving a comment on the show notes for this episode over at drinksofthedoll.com slash 60. You can send us an email to feedback at drinksofthedoll.com 
or you can send us a voice message by clicking on the send a voicemail tab on the right hand side of the website. I'm so glad you could join us for Drinks at the Doll. My name is Stephanie. My god, you're beautiful. Sorry, that's my attempt at my sexy voice, Annie. And I'm Batman. I mean Chris. My name is Chris. Thanks for listening. Cheers. I now feel like I want to talk for the rest of the episode in Ash voice. <laughs> Go ahead. That'd be awesome. You should have done that from the beginning. And I should have done my sexy Lauren voice. And then we would have had one hell of an episode, so we could do that. And then Stephanie says, I hate both of you. <laughs> right now, yes, I do.